Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. Most every day in the course of our lives is not memorable. We go through the day and we don't remember most events, but there are a handful of things as we grow older that we will remember always. And for me, one of those moments is February 22nd, 2007. And that's the day that my first child, my daughter, was born. I will never forget that day. All of the events are frozen in my mind. And it's like I can go back to them and remember every single thing. And I remember, for example, that evening, Vicki had had a, a pretty difficult delivery with Avery, and she was asleep. And the nurse nudged the door open, and she brought in the carrier, and she said, Dad, would you like to hold your daughter? And so I picked her up, she left, and I'm holding her in my hands. And it's perhaps the most nervous I've ever been in my entire life. What do you do with this? What am I supposed to do? Surely Vicky knows, but she's asleep. And so I lay down on the fold-out couch in the room, and, and that lasts about five minutes. Because I'm afraid I'm going to fall asleep and roll over on my daughter, and, and that's it. I'm going to smother her. I'm petrified. So I grab her, I jump up, and I begin to pace around the room. I'm wearing a circle. I'm creating a circle in the floor, just holding her, bouncing, walking, whispering in her ear, I don't know what I'm doing. I love you. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm very afraid. Are you afraid? Finally, I go out into the hallway, and I just begin, it's late at night, I begin to go up and down the hallway of the hospital with Avery. And the nurse who brought her to the room sees me, and she says, would you like me to take her back to the nursery? And I said, absolutely. I am a nervous wreck. And she said, that's very common with new dads. So she takes Avery, she puts her down, and she said, you're going to be okay, you're going to be all right. And I said, thank you. And she wheels Avery down the hallway just a few feet, and then she turns around and she looks at me, and she says, hey, Dad. And I turned around and look at her, and she says, this changes everything, you know. And I said, yeah does. Everything from this moment is changed. And so when we come to the gospel today, we see the resurrection and we see Jesus coming to life, the Father victoriously bringing him to life. And so when we look at the gospel and we look at the resurrection, my takeaway is this changes everything. Everything. Let's pray. Lord, may your word bless us. May your word encourage us. 
Lord, may your word strengthen us. May it not return void. Thank you for being in our presence. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for changing everything. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There are three things that we're going to look at this morning. Three things that are different because of the resurrection. The first is that the kingdom has been planted in the garden because of the resurrection. That we have a mission because of the resurrection. And finally, the third, we have an older brother because of the resurrection. So, first thing, let's look at the kingdom being planted in the garden. And in order to understand this, in order to look at this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. It's, it's impossible to understand the Old New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. It's God's unified, complete story of redemption that unfolds from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So what, if, you, if you have a chance, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you will remember, God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. These are our parents. And he says to them that if you obey my covenant, if you obey my word, if you follow after me, I'm going to bless you in such a way that you cannot possibly imagine. You will live in my presence forever. You will live in perfection forever. This will be the, the, the best place you can possibly be forever. And that's what God does to Adam and Eve. He comes to them and he encourages them to obey the covenant. He lays out the covenant before them. And what happens? What happens? Well, we know from Genesis, Moses tells us that Adam and Eve disobey. That they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because they have broken the covenant that God has so graciously set forth, they are cursed. They fall under his judgment and they are removed from the garden. And so all of creation and all of humanity plunges into a terrible place, a difficult place, a dark place, all because of the sin of our first parents, the sin that we inherit, a sin that comes to us. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, 8 through, verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then skip to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are the dust, and to dust you shall return. 
So here's the scene. The fall means separation from God. Adam and Eve are dwelling in this perfect place, in this, this garden where God is with them. And then they sin, they disobey, they transgress the covenant, and they are taken outside of the garden, and separation creeps in that had not existed before, and humanity is far from God. We are now sinful, we are broken, evil, evilness creeps into this world where we live They are removed from this place of perfection. Covenant disobedience is catastrophic. And so if we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we see God's people outside of the protection and the perfection of the garden, and they are struggling. They are having a difficult time. The world seems as if it's falling apart. They are unable to obey the covenant. They are unable to obey God. They are not able to listen to Him. Nothing is going right. It is is strife. It is struggle. It is pain and evil and false worship. Worship of other gods instead of the one true God. Nothing seems right. Nothing seems good. Nothing is in place. The world is off kilter. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. And so we see in the New Testament, Jesus come on the scene. And we see Him obey the Word of God perfectly. And we see Jesus go to the cross. And then we see Jesus die. And the disciples are at that point confused. They're perplexed. Everything is the same. Nothing has changed. It's just brokenness. Everything's disjointed. The one who we thought was going to make everything right, who was going to bring a new order, the one who is going to save us, he's gone, he's dead. Par for the course, if you will. This is the trajectory of human life since the fall. Nothing is ever right. Ever. And then we come to our text. John chapter 20, 10 through 18. It's important that we go back and we look at this. Yes, we've read it once, but I want us to go back and look at it closer. Beginning with verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept. Excuse me. And as she wept, she stood, stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. So she's there in the dark. Jesus' disciples have left him. And it's this, this woman who had been healed by Jesus earlier in the Gospels. And she's she's out there, and she doesn't know what's happened to her Savior, and she looks inside the tomb. And when she looks inside the tomb, everything changes. Everything changes. Hear this. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, 
They have taken away my Lord, and I do not where they have laid him. She thinks he's been stolen. She thinks that his body has been taken from the tomb, that he has been stolen. This was not uncommon in ancient, the ancient Middle East. In fact, the Romans created a law that said grave robbers will be punished by death. So it wasn't uncommon for this to happen. And she thinks that they have taken him away, that his body has been stolen. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, you can make the argument that it's early in the morning, there's very little light, it's hard to see who Jesus is. But one of the things that we see as we look ahead in the Gospels is that people did not recognize Jesus at first when they saw him. And so scholars make the argument that they're seeing Jesus in his glorified state, that when God restores all things, when he puts all the pieces back together. And remember, Jesus is the first fruit of this. He's the first one to experience this resurrection. That when God does this, things are different. They are better. They're different. They're better. Because God is renewing all things unto himself. He's recreating the heavens and the earth. The process begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because of that, it's not going to be as it was. Because as it was, was fallen and broken and disjointed and uneven and sinful. Now we know that Jesus, of course, was without sin, but he is the first fruit of the resurrection. He is the beginning of the process of the recreation of all things. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. The stone is rolled away from the tomb. And notice this. Where is it situated? In a garden. And who is the first person to see Jesus? A woman. It's Mary Magdalene. And she even confuses Jesus for a what? A gardener. So notice this in the Gospels. It's not Peter who sees Jesus first. It's not Andrew who sees Jesus first. It's not John. It's not even his brother James who's apparently not even there. It's none of these men who see Jesus. The first person to see Jesus raised from the dead is his follower, Mary Magdalene. So notice what's happening here. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus later on in the New Testament the second Adam. Where was Adam and Eve in when they fell? They were in the garden. And what happened when they sinned, when they disobeyed the covenant? They were taken outside of the garden and all of the world plunged into sin. Then Jesus comes at the will of the Father to obey the covenant perfectly, to give His life for us. He's a man on a mission to redeem His people. He dies. He goes to a tomb. Where is the tomb? It's in a garden. Do you see what's happening here? That God is restoring everything. God is making 
all things new. And where we failed in the garden, where we sinned in the garden, where we disobeyed the covenant in the garden, Jesus comes to life in the garden. And he is going to plant his kingdom in this location. So the soil of that tomb in the ancient Middle East in the garden is the most fertile soil in all the earth because this is where Jesus is creating and beginning and planting his kingdom that will one day come in all its fullness. We messed everything up in the garden. Jesus begins the process of bringing it all back together in the garden. So it's in the garden where Adam and Eve, where we bring death, is where he brings life. It's where we brought pain and misery. It's where he brings hope. It's where we brought hatred. It's where he brings love. So we celebrate the resurrection at Easter, but in fact we celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day of Jesus Christ because it is where the kingdom goes forth and it is the reminder to us that God is straightening out everything, that God is going to redeem us and restore all things. And so the the resurrection changes absolutely everything. We come to this place this morning and we worship a God who through the resurrection is changing all things. Everything is now different because a carpenter from Nazareth walked out of that tomb. And that's where he planted his kingdom. Second point, because of the resurrection, we have a mission. Because of the resurrection, we have a mission. If you look at verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So because of the resurrection, Jesus plants his kingdom in the garden. Jesus begins the process of renewing all things to himself. Because of the resurrection, we are given a mission. Jesus says to his disciples that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, we understand that the apostles with a capital A, are a special group of people who are appointed to do a special thing at an important time in the redemptive history of God's people. They were given a power and ability that we don't have. And that was, the reason that happened, the reason that transpired, is so that God's word could go forth. The New Testament didn't exist. God's people didn't have the New Testament. So God was verifying and establishing and planting, if you will, His Word through the unbelievable and specific actions and teachings and miracles of the apostles. So that's apostle with a capital A. In Greek it means that they were emissaries. And what were the apostles able to do? Well, if you read through the Gospel of Acts, you see the apostles and you see their ministry and you see the early church and what you realize is that in some sense they began the process of turning the entire world upside down as Christianity spread from this tiny little place around the globe. But it's important to also understand that we are apostles in terms of a lowercase a. We are sent ones as well. 
We are people because of the resurrection who are on a mission. We are kingdom emissaries. So this week, some of you may have seen in the news a Gallup report that came out. And it said that for the first time in U.S. history, as long as they have been tracking it, that church membership is below 50%. And that church membership has fallen significantly in the last 20 years. And so this report gained a lot of attention. I saw people posting about it on social media, people talking about it in the news. And it really wasn't a surprise, to be completely honest. Before planting this church, I led the Mid-South Church Planning Network. And I had to study a lot of statistics and research in order to help the network, help church planters as they planted in communities across the Mid-South. And really, if you look at some of the reports and some of the statistics and some of the research regarding church attendance, which is actually a better measure than church membership, because frankly, we're a church plant in the South and most of us are Southerners, and we understand that everyone in the South is a member of a church, whether they really are or not. So the statistic is skewed. So some of the better reports to look at are the ones that talk about attendance. And conservatively speaking, in our neck of the woods, church, church attendance is somewhere around 18%. And that's a, I think that's fair. I think that's accurate. I think that's scientific. That about 18% of the population goes to church on a regular basis. So that means 80 to 82% of the population is not in church. If we want to be conservative, we can say 30% of the population is in church. I think that's skewed, but if you want to be conservative with that number. So what does that tell you? That tells you in North America we have a problem. That in terms of Christianity, it is on the decline. There are fewer people who profess faith in Christ. There are fewer people who go to church. There are fewer people who are members of a church. That's one of the reasons that we are big proponents of planting a church because research shows that church plants are so unbelievably effective at reaching people who are not in church. So that's part of the reason why we are here, and that's part of the reason why we are doing this. We are kingdom emissaries. We have been commissioned by Christ. We have been tasked with proclaiming him to others. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has commissioned his kingdom emissaries to share their faith. Now, often how this is translated is Jesus has told us that we should move overseas and become missionaries and talk to people who have never heard anything about Christianity. But I haven't been called to do that, so I'm not going to go. And that's not the case. Yes, the Lord does call some people to go and to serve overseas 
as missionaries. He calls some people to be church planters. He calls some people to be ministers and to faithfully proclaim the word where they live. But the reality of the resurrection is that God has commissioned all of us to tell others about what God has done. To go and to tell everyone that the resurrection changes everything. This is God, His perfect plan to restore all things and His people unto Himself. This is good news. That the pain that you face and the loneliness that you face and the struggles that you deal with and the issues that that are just overwhelming at times, that God, through Christ, has an answer to all of that. You are not without hope. You are not left in the dark. God has come for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, if we belong to Him, if we are people of God, then it's our responsibility to tell others about who Jesus is and what He has done. How do we do that? Well, we do it through prayer. Are we praying for our friends and our family members who may not know Jesus? Are we praying for opportunities to talk to people at work or in our neighborhood or elsewhere about Jesus? Are we actively coming before the Father and are we praying that we will have the opportunity to talk about everything that Jesus has done for us, that we will have the opportunity to talk about the resurrection. We can also give. God has blessed us. He has given us good things. And so in return, we can give so that the gospel message goes forward. Lord, you've blessed me. You've been good to me. I want to bless those that seek to share the good news with others. And then thirdly, just simply, but very importantly, how we live. How we live. Matthew 5, 15 through 16. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, when we are transformed by the power of the resurrection, we understand that we now belong to Jesus, and that's, that also changes everything. That we live for Him, and Jesus is love. And so our life should reflect the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that He has poured out on us. We should be a reflection of who He is, because He is in us. So we pray as kingdom emissaries, we pray about reaching others in the name of Jesus. We give in order to reach others in the name of Jesus. And we live in accordance to his, of His Word. We live as followers of Christ because we live in a world that has fallen and people are watching and what we want them to see are kind, gracious, loving, forgiving, helping, merciful people. Not obstinate, hard, unforgiving, mean-spirited individuals. We want to be a reflection of Jesus. We want to be the fifth gospel. We want to be the fifth gospel. Lord, may I be a light to others. Help them to see Jesus in me despite my own sin 
and struggles and problems and hypocrisy. May Jesus come out. May he come forward. So we can pray, we can give, we can live, and then we must speak of what Jesus has done for us. We can't be quiet. Hear 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. As followers of Jesus who have been transformed by the power of the resurrection, we should speak of His love and of His grace and of all that He has done for us. It should naturally flow from our heart. Our heart should be so filled with the love that He has bestowed upon us that it just simply spills over in a very gentle and respectful, winsome way. Hey, let me tell you about my King who changes everything. Let me tell you about Him. So the resurrection is Jesus planting his kingdom in the garden. The resurrection means that we are emissaries of Jesus. And then the resurrection also means that we have an older brother. The resurrection means that we have an older brother. I have been playing around with Ancestry.com for the last few years. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. And a couple of years ago, I submitted my DNA test. And I wanted to see if there was anybody else out there who had submitted their DNA test and we were linked. And really nothing happened. There were a few people that came up that I kind of knew that we were second, third cousins. And then one day I get this message from London, England. And this man says, hey, I'm your seventh cousin through somebody. So my immediate reaction is, this is spam, and this guy's trying to take advantage of me somehow, so I contact Ancestry.com, and they tell me that, no, it's not, that only people who are connected through their DNA are allowed to talk, talk to each other through our message board, so he is your legitimate ancestor. So I did the homework, I went back on my father's side, and sure enough, He's my sixth cousin in London, England, who's originally from Scotland, who just decided not to get on the boat. So I'm the adventurous side of the family. Clearly, I would become a church planner. So I've stayed in touch with Ancestry. I'm looking at stories about Ancestry. I'm just fascinated by all of it. And I saw one about a year ago about a man who did the same thing. He submitted his DNA test. It came back, and lo and behold... It didn't show that he had a sixth cousin, sixth or seventh cousin down the line in London, England. It showed that he had a half-brother that he did not know about. And this man had done very well in life, very successful. And he was able to hire a detective to go find his brother. I want you to do everything in your power to locate my brother. And so he goes and he comes back to him several months later and he says, I found your brother. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. He said, your brother has lived a horrible life. He's lived a very difficult and a very challenging life. 
His life has not been fair. And he's not been loved. And he's not been cared for. And in fact, he's now alone and destitute and homeless. And so this man went and he went to his brother and he brought him home. And he said, everything that is mine is now yours. And you are in my family. And you shall never want and you shall never need anything again. And so some reporters got wind of this story and they came and they interviewed the man and he, he was really too emotional to say much of anything. The brother that took care of him and the brother that provided for him did most of the speaking. And at the end, they go back to the man and in tears, they said, what's it like to be found by your older brother? And all he could say was, I now belong. I now belong. That this man whose life had no meaning and it had no purpose, it was full of hurt, it was full of struggle, it was full of anguish, he's found by his older brother and his response is, I belong. My life has meaning. My life has purpose. So notice this in our text. This is very interesting what John does here. As he's recording the words of Jesus. Verse 2, disciples. Verse 3, disciples. Verse 4, disciples. Verse 8 and 10, disciples. And then we get to the resurrection. And here, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my disciples. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus has been... Jesus is standing before Mary Magdalene. He's telling her to go to the disciples. And in light of the resurrection, he's saying, yes, they are my disciples. Yes, they are my followers. But they are my brothers. And here we see the theology of adoption unfolded in the Gospel of John. That because of the resurrection, Jesus is the first fruit. He is our older brother. And the cross and the tomb means that we are allowed entrance into the family. Here is our older brother coming for us. In our destitute state, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our, in our poverty... Jesus, our older brother, comes to us and he says, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, you are now mine. God is your father. I am your older brother. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. So the resurrection means that we belong. The resurrection means that we have meaning and that we have purpose in the in difficult life, in a difficult world, a fallen world, a life that is full of stress and struggle and things go wrong and families aren't right and marriages aren't perfect and children don't always do what we ask them to do and 
and our careers don't always work out like they should, and illnesses come, and people die, and evil takes place, and injustice is everywhere, and we look at this world, and we look at this life, and sometimes you, you just want to give up. Why is it this way? Why does it never work? And Jesus comes to us in the midst of that, and he lifts us up, and he says, Hey, brother, welcome to the family. And that changes everything. That absolutely changes everything. Our unworthiness has meaning. Our failings have meaning. Our imperfections have meaning. We come to this family with nothing, and God in Christ gives us everything. We walk through the door full of sin and transgressions and God says, let's clean all this up and give you new clothes. We come hungry and God says, come sit at my table. Jesus brings us into the Father now and forever as a part of His family. And that's unbelievable great news. For some people... Their family life has been great and it's wonderful. And I will tell you that you're just getting a tiny, itty-bitty glimpse of how great the family of God is going to be. If your family life has been good and joyous and loving and affirming and welcoming, then you're just getting a tiny morsel taste of what the family of God is going to be like because of Jesus, our older brother. But if your family life has been hard and difficult and messed up and challenging, then you are in for a surprise. Because God is going to make it all right in His family. That's the great news of the gospel. That's what the resurrection means we belong. Because Jesus Christ exited that tomb, we belong. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the good news that is the resurrection of your Son from the dead and that it changes absolute everything. That we have hope, that we have meaning, that we have purpose, that we have life. That we belong. Thank you, Lord, for that, for doing that for us, for accomplishing that in our hearts and in our souls. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.